Good morning. The scripture reading today is from the second chapter of Acts, verses 22 through 40, and you will find it on page 1658 in the Pew Bible. This is Peter speaking. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Cheryl. So I, I won't know for a couple days yet, but it looks like um, High Point is going to um, be hosting the funeral for, um, for Tony Robinson, probably on Saturday. And so if you would like to help us host that, just because there aren't a lot of churches that have the seating capacity we have. And I, we know the pastor who's probably going to be in charge. And so if you would like to be here to host for that, um, send an email to the front desk or leave a slip of paper with your name and your email and phone number on there. And we'll, we'll get in touch with you as soon as we know something. 
but I, I think it's our civic responsibility if, if we are invited to do it, and it's a real privilege to serve the community. And so um, if you want to be on deck for that, um, let us know. So um, the last couple of weeks, we've been going through the beginning of Acts, and I've been talking about um, what we're just, I'm just calling the new normal for lack of a more creative thing to say. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit comes, it starts a new era of human and reality's existence that exists between the coming of the Holy Spirit and the return of Christ, in which this is the new normal, the normal of the age of the message of the redemption of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the offer of redemption to all people in all places at all times. And that new normal has at least five parts of it. They're in Acts 1, 7, and 8, where Jesus actually commissions his followers what to do, and then the book of Acts shows us what it tells us for the rest of the book, okay? <clears throat> Jesus said to them, that is his followers, he says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, that is, that would end this age, right? He says, but you, which is plural— will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the storyline, the plot of this book is that the Holy Spirit is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to work in them in such a way that they are going to be witnesses of the message everywhere. Right? That's the plot. It's already set down in the first verses, and then he's going to show us for the rest of the book. And that new normal that is set up with this commission and the coming of the Spirit has at least these five parts. One is the power and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, preached about a few weeks ago. The second is the message of redemption is entrusted to people, right? Jesus ascends, and the church now is, those who believe in Jesus are responsible with the message of Jesus, one. Third is the complete message of the gospel is now possessed by humanity. That, ne- that never happened before that. Before that, there was some limited amount of the promise that people had to trust in. So Abraham, it was like, go live over there. And he had to just believe God. And if he believed God to go live over there, and that God would bless all people somehow through him, God credited righteousness to him. God saved him, right? And as you went along, there were kings, and God said there'd be a, a prophet like Moses, and a king like David, and a savior. This, and, and it built up. But finally, when Jesus came and helped his disciples understand how all of that Old Testament was about him, all of a sudden, people could realize for the first time in history the whole promise who the king was, who the prophet after Moses was going to be, how he was going to save, what he was going to do, what was going on, how this was going to work, that that, all of that we have now, and that's different, right? And then fourth is the dynamic power of Uh, the dynamic of power, proclamation, and persecution. That is, as we go through the book of Acts, one of the things we're going to see as normal in the human Christian experience is that God does something, people tell the message, and some people attack them for it. And that that's normal. That's not weird. And lastly, is that God creates this this new humanity, this new family called the church, which is really actually very different and meant to have a certain identity. I'm going to talk about that next time. Vince, who actually prefers to be called Vincent, um, preached last week, and he he talked about how um, God saves people through people, and that in order for God to save people through people, three things have to happen. One, they have to actually see the power of God in some way, usually. And if, if, if you can do a miracle through the power of God, that's great. 
Um, but however it happens, they've got to see something. So they've got to either see God act directly. They've got to come into a place where God has radically changed people, like a church that actually loves each other and is on mission and wants to make a difference and is speaking the gospel and cares about the things, all that kind of stuff, things of God. Or third, they need to see you. They need to see a different you. They need something of the power of God in your life, which might be that you're incredibly godly, right? But it also might be that you're on trajectory, right? In fact, for some people, trajectory is more compelling than godly because some people will meet a Christian who God has done a a remarkable transformation in, but because they meet them when they're already transformed, it doesn't seem that weird. They just go, oh, they're a nice person. They're just a nice person. But the person who was like a really big jerk, right, and came to Jesus and is still like playing JV jerk. I mean, he's still pretty not a great feller, but he's clearly different than he was, right? Like that, people sometimes look at that, they go, whoa, that's, something's happening there, right? I have to see the power of God. The second is they have to hear the message of the gospel. When people see the power of God, they are led to think or feel, what does that mean? And somebody has to tell them what it means. They don't interpret it for themselves in most cases. And so we have to tell them the truth or message about Jesus. And that message is, you're wrong about Jesus. And this is who Jesus is. Won't you come to that? Hey, could you guys turn the house lights up when you get a chance? Come to Jesus, right? It includes accusation and it includes invitation, right? And then last, it requires you, right? Like somebody has to deliver their experience with the power of God and the message and the accusation and the invitation. Somebody's got to bring that to them, and so it requires us, right? But at some point in that, when we deliver that and they see something, we have to invite them, but at some point we have to say, you're wrong about Jesus, right? And so that brings up the question, basically. There's two questions. One is, well, what's going to happen when we do that? Right? And if I'm going to tell somebody they're wrong about Jesus, I better be ready for the best case scenario, which is if they say, well, then what is the right, what is right about Jesus? Right? So you got to be ready for the worst case scenario. You got to be ready for the best case scenario, right? And that, so we're going to talk about these, the third and the fourth point of the new normal this morning. One, one is when we tell people that they're wrong about Jesus, a certain portion of the people we tell they're wrong about Jesus are going to attack us, okay? That attack accompanies accusation. That is going to happen. Now, that, that's not the same thing as being a jerk, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who want to tell people that they're wrong about Jesus, and it's really not for their good. It's because they're, they're just— they're self-righteous or they're mean or whatever. They do it in really mean ways or very insensitive ways. And that is not what we're talking about. If you have to offend somebody and you are a decently loving and empathetic human being, you realize you need to be as unoffensive as possible and let the offense be all the offensiveness that happens. Does that make sense? And like offer a little sympathy. Be like, yeah, I guess I think you're wrong about Jesus. Right? You got to practice your sorry to tell you the truth face. Now, when, when you do that, um, there's generally speaking going to be three responses that you'll get from people. One is acceptance, right? It's just some, like, people will be like, oh, huh, 
Well, what is right about Jesus? Oh yeah, I do want to come. Oh, I love you. Thank you so much for telling me. Now that's, that's a minority usually, but that does happen. And part of our hope is that we know that God is going to cause that to happen if we will just be faithful to tell people, okay? The second and probably the, the majority are going are to reject it. They're going to say, I'm wrong about Jesus. No, you're wrong about Jesus. Or they're going to be like, I don't really care. Or they're going to say, I don't find that persuasive. And you're going to feel bad about that. Now, sometimes we're going to feel bad about that because we're just insecure, right? And we're so emotionally dependent on other people's acceptance that when they reject the message about Jesus, we're going to take that as a personal rejection, and we're going to get in a little self-destructive tailspin. And that's just, that's just insecurity, and Jesus will help you with that as you walk with him and trust him and so on, because that really shouldn't do that, okay? But if you really love Christ, and you love the message of the gospel, and you really care about the person you're telling it to, and they just flat reject you, that is going to hurt your feelings. And that's totally right. Your feelings should be hurt. You should be sad about that. You shouldn't be like, I told that guy, and he said no, and isn't that funny? It's not funny. You do care, right? And they should be able to see that in how you act. But the last group, and the group we need to talk about a little bit today, is that some people are going to attack you for it. They're going to say, I'm not wrong about Jesus. You're wrong about Jesus, and you need to be stopped because you're dangerous, and I'm going to stop you. Or less noble than that. That's a personal attack against me, and I'm going to get you for that. And here's what you need to realize. There are people who are going to do that. They are going to attack you. It is going to hurt. And it will happen to every Christian who is faithful to share the message of the gospel. And what happens to you when people attack you, the fun Christian word for this that other people use too, is persecution, right? Now, one of the things that we have to get over is this idea that if you share the gospel and somebody rejects it or attacks you for it, that that's somehow your fault, right? Now, if you're a jerk and they are mad at you because you're a jerk, then that kind of is your fault, right? But if you actually try to do the work of contextualization, try to figure out how they're feeling, what they're thinking, what their life is like, how they look at things, and you try to tell them the message connected to that and sensitive to it and all those kinds of things, and they still say no, to just assume constantly that, that is, however they react is your fault is the psychology of abuse, right? How do you know you're in an abusive relationship when whatever anybody else does you assume is your fault? right? It is not your fault. Some people are going to accept the message. The majority of people are going to reject it, and some subset of that group that reject it is going to attack you for it, and that is not your fault. Jesus did a very good job in sharing the message, and lots of people attacked him. Now, you have to be a lot more humble about it, <laughs> because some of the attack might be your fault. But that's not, that's not the way it is. In fact, Jesus was really clear about this. In fact, in Mark 4, Mark records this one teaching of Jesus that's sometimes referred to as the parable of the sower, where Jesus is like, look, here's what, here's what the gospel is like. There's somebody walking around, and he's got the seeds, and he's just throwing them on the ground, because that's what life is like. You don't set—you don't have time to, like, set seeds down. You just go through life, and you live it. And so when it comes to the Word of God, you share it, and you just kind of—you're throwing it around. And 
It's all good seed, and you're throwing it, and it, but it doesn't all land on equally fertile soil. And in some places, it doesn't grow at all, and the birds will come and eat it. And in other places, it's rocky soil, and it grows up a little bit, but then the sun scorches it. And in other places, it's so fertile that there's weeds there, too. And they grow up and choke it, and there's no crop, but one, only one out of the four different categories does he say it grows up. But when it does, when something does grow, it produces 30 times or 50 times or 100 times what you planted. Right? And he said, it's worth it. It's worth it for that, that one category. See, the point of that whole parable is people are going to reject the gospel and they're going to even attack you in their rejection of the gospel. And that does not mean it's your fault. You're going to share the gospel and live as a Christian with integrity and you're going to be attacked for it at some point. And that just, that's just the way it's going to be. Does that make sense? It's just not, I know it's not, might not be exciting, but does it, right? Deep Christian faith, real, biblical, Jesus-centered, life-changing Christian faith is always going to bring persecution. There's this passage where the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's in jail. Actually, 2 Timothy is where he says, I think they're about to chop my head off. Um, and he's writing to him, and this is one of the pieces of advice he gives this younger pastor who's still free at this, at this moment. He says, you, meaning you, Timothy, however, know all about, all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, and endurance, and also his persecutions and his suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them, right? And yet he says in this, but not from this last one, Right? And if you don't know this, the reason in church tradition Paul is often painted and somewhere in the picture is a sword, it's because the tradition on his martyrdom is that he was beheaded, right? What he's saying in this is saying, listen, Timothy, you know about me. You know how I teach. You know how I act. You know how patient I am with people. You know that I'm loving. You know what endurance I have with people. You know what I'm really like, and you know how I was treated, okay? Don't be naive. Don't be naive. I, I did exactly what Jesus wanted me to do, and some people attacked me for it, and you know that. Now, don't be naive. And then he says, in fact, everyone, not just, not just missionaries. He said, listen, Timothy, everybody, you gotta, don't just listen to this from me because you're a missionary too. You need to tell all the churches this. You need to tell everybody who's a Christian. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to be persecuted. While evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. By imposters there, he means Christian imposters. There will be some Christians that seem to get off scot-free, and they never get persecuted, and his argument implicitly is, it's they actually do not have spiritual integrity. Because if you live with Christian integrity— at some point, someone is going to take offense about it. They're going to find your desire to live the way you believe God has instructed us to live in full service to Jesus, and they're going to take that either as a personal attack against them, and they're going to take offense and come after you about it, or they're going to see it as dangerous to something they possess. And you see this as you go through the book of Acts, right? There's this one point where Paul um, releases this woman of demonic possession, but her slave owners are angry because that's how they made money, and so they attack Paul, right? 
In another place, Paul is preaching in this in Ephesus, and people are believing him. And the silversmiths who make little pagan idols, and that's how they make their money, and it's decently lucrative, and they ship them all over the Roman Empire. Because Ephesus is the second largest city in the whole empire, and Ephesus is the queen of the, of the idols of this whole area. The temple of Artemis is the second greatest building in all of Rome, right? And yet Paul is in Ephesus, the home of Artemis, persuading people not to worship her. And they're like, that is not okay. And they create this huge disturbance and get them thrown in jail and beaten because they are concerned about their business's bottom line. There's lots of reasons why there's persecution, but everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, whether you're vocal or not, will be persecuted. And if you faithfully share the gospel message, it'll be worse, not better. And though persecution isn't constant, it is a consistent reality in the Christian life. Now, you don't see that in chapter 2 of Acts. That's because chapter 2 of Acts is basically the only freebie sermon the church gets in the whole book of Acts. By chapter 3, they preach the second sermon, and there's somebody who's healed, and they're preaching about Jesus, and they get arrested, thrown in jail, they get brought into their trial, and they say what they say, and the people in charge say, listen, you cannot talk about Jesus. You cannot talk about his death and resurrection. You cannot talk about—you can't talk about this stuff. Okay? Period. And then they let him go, and they hope that they've solved it, right? And the apostles tell them that they haven't, right? They say, well, you just have to decide if we're going to trust you or God, right? In chapter 5, they're talking about Jesus again. They get arrested again, except this time they don't just get a stern warning. They get flogged, which is unpleasant, Right? And do you know what the Bible says about their attitude after that? Right? It says they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Right? And then by chapter 7, just a hop, skip, and a jump, Stephen gets stoned to death for accusing and inviting. Right? The first Christian martyr. But they don't just stop with Stephen, Right? It says in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, that it starts a regional persecution and that Saul, who would later be the great missionary Paul, but who was not a Christian liker at this point, he got—he went and got papers to take to Damascus so he could imprison or worse the Christians there. Now, where is Damascus? Right? See, if you don't have your biblical—if your biblical geography straight, you're like, oh yeah, Damascus, that was just down the street, right? That was like Middleton, right? But it wasn't. There's only one real Damascus that doesn't need a regional name next to it. It's the oldest inhabited city in the world, and it is in Syria. Okay? The second oldest Christian community in, on planet Earth is in Syria. Second to Jerusalem. And so much were the persecutors of the church motivated by their killing of Stephen that Paul got papers to go all the way to Syria and cross a desert so that he could make life miserable for the Christians there. Does make sense? Like, that's—do you see how it's ramping up? And what Luke is trying to explain to us is that this is part of the new normal. Persecution is part of the new normal. Persecution is part of the Christian life. Integrity 
and vocality. If you live the gospel and if you speak the gospel, it will produce persecution for everyone at some point and with some level of consistency. And if that has never happened, that is not a sign of being lucky. Jesus said one time, this is John chapter 15, so Jesus is ready to get himself killed. And so he reminds them something that he's probably told them a number of times, right? He says, remember the words I spoke to you, meaning I've told you this a bunch of times already, but now that they're going to kill me, let me just make sure we cover this one more time, right? So it's not a one-time teaching. He says, listen, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And if they obeyed my teaching, they'd obey your teaching. Right? You see, but you, you might say, now wait a second, Nick. I thought that the Christian message was Jesus suffered for us so we wouldn't have to suffer. Isn't that right? And that is close, but not right at all. Okay? Jesus suffered for our sins. That is, the judicial right penalty for our guilt against God. Jesus died for that. But he did not die so that we wouldn't suffer for all of the positive and necessary purposes of suffering that he himself shared in. So the way Jesus brought salvation is through suffering. And so you and I do not participate, if we're Christians, we don't participate in the work of the cross. We don't. Jesus died for the sins of humanity. You can't add to that. There's nothing you can do but accept that and, and, and possess its benefits. You, we don't participate in the work of the cross, but we do participate in the way of the cross. The, the dying that Jesus did for the purpose of redemption, we do get to walk that. And in the Bible, those, the way of the cross— and the life of resurrection are actually connected inextricably with each other. And this is difficult for evangelicals and Protestants because the idea of the way of the cross has been characteristically historically a Catholic idea. Roman Catholics have really connected with this idea, and Protestants have not marshaled it as much. And that's just an oversight, and we're going to be helped by our friends, because the Apostle Paul, who we love to quote, says in Philippians 3, one of the passages we love to quote, he says at the very end about receiving his righteousness directly from God, only by faith, right? And you're like, yeah, we receive it. We don't do it. We, right? Do you know how he ends that passage in, in Philippians chapter 3? He says this about Jesus and being united with him. He said, so I can be united with Jesus. And then he says this, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow— to obtain the resurrection of the dead. That's what he says. Becoming like him, but he's referring to his own experience in union with Christ in that context. So he's already received a foreign righteousness from God that forgives his sins, makes him right with God, and allows him to be in union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. In that state, he says, and so to become like him, meaning like Jesus fully, in his, that's Jesus, death. 
And so through that, somehow, to obtain the resurrection from the dead, meaning I am going to walk with him like Jesus through the whole arc of this. And though I don't participate in the work of the cross, I am walking in the way of the cross, which includes redemptive suffering. That is, the suffering that you and I could suffer for the good of others we are not saved from. That is not part of the Christian message. The the suffering cost that it costs for the world to receive redemption in all its forms, you and I are not saved from in Jesus. What we are saved from is the, is the far worse, far more enduring suffering of our sins that Jesus paid for. And when you recognize that, you'll recognize that you have to deal with the concept of suffering specifically related to persecution in order to believe the gospel. Now, related to this, um, one of the things that concerns me sometimes when I hear Christians, especially in the evangelical Protestant church, talk about persecution is it it frustrates me because I feel as though— I don't feel as though. I both feel and think as though that there is a certain amount of flippancy in relationship to the reality of persecution. Um, Sometimes I hear people say, you know, persecution is good. It's good for the church. It purifies it. I mean, Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? And persecution is how God sends the gospel everywhere. And so, you know, I've heard the Chinese Christians have been praying that persecution would come to America to bring the American church back to life. And, you know, that's just the way it is. And that's very pious. And I'm really glad that you're trying to think spiritual thoughts. That is really foolish. Okay? And I've heard other people who believe in a kind of— and I think in some ways, out of a a good sincerity, they want to believe in a kind of church-state disestablishment that—where the church makes no claim on anything related to the state or its policies in in relationship to what they believe happened in the 80s with, like, the Christian moral majority and all that kind of thing. And they want to see this full recognition in the church that we don't own the government, this isn't a Christian country, we are the church, and as minorities, we are going to get persecuted. That's just reality. We just need to be ready for that and so on. And I understand that mentality. I mean, I lived through that myself. I was that. I was the Christian that got to be right after the moral majority, right? I got to go to college right when that thing was happening, and there was this backlash um, in universities and so on. So don't, don't act like you're the first generation to go through that, right? And it's, this is important because those sentimentalities about persecution are very flippant, and they're very wrong, Persecution is a terrible injustice that incurs enormous and damning guilt on its perpetrators. So first of all, do not underestimate the horror of the effect of persecution on its recipients, whether Christian or otherwise. In order to be theologically and to have the consistency of integrity, we have, in some level, we have to care as much about Baha'is who are being persecuted in Iran as Christians who are being persecuted in Iran. Because we believe it's fundamentally human to be allowed to believe according to conscience. What the moral conscience demands, the center of the meaning of our humanity, we must have the freedom to accept that and live that and be that. And when people take that away and say, no, I'm going to break your leg or pick your pocket, if you do that— that was a quote from Thomas Jefferson, that we are taking away the most fundamental liberty of human beings. 
And we should be against that, not just because what we fear might happen to us, but we should be against that in relationship to Muslims who live in America, minority Jewish populations, subsets of Buddhists, and whatever, whoever the minority is, whoever does not have the controls of power. We need to to have an understanding of what liberty is and not ourselves oppress others in that way. And, and speak against that when others seek to oppress us or other people that way. And that's partly because, listen, you cannot say, look, we're Christians, we don't own this country, people are going to persecute us. Do not hope that for them. Persecuting others in that kind of oppression it incurs an enormous weight of guilt. Do not allow your neighbor to slide into that. Because their political ideology or their secular ideology is on the ascendancy that they're going to persecute us, and that's okay. It's not okay. It's morally damning. It destroys human conscience and twists the humanity of the soul. Do not allow your neighbors to indulge in that kind of thinking. We cannot be flippant about persecution. But in, in, in addition to that, if you believe that kind of thing, it's just wrong about persecution. Yes, yes, sometimes the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is sometimes true. But listen, yes, it's also true that in the last 70 or 80 years in China, under a very oppressive regime, the church has grown magnificently. That's true. Okay? They don't even, I can't even count the Christians in China now, somewhere between 50 to 100 million. Nobody knows how many there are. But do not wave your hand at that. Do you know how many Chinese people have, have been beheaded in public squares and shot like they were nothing? And just, it's, I mean, just, just read um, some of the biographies of the missionaries that were kicked out of China and some of the horrors that they witnessed. In my office, there's a picture of, um, the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. And right under this is this sort of like faded paper. And it's a insert in the Shanghai Times in September of 1800. And it is the list of all the missionaries that had been murdered that week. That my great-great-aunt that was a missionary with China Inland Mission at that time sent back to one of the families supporting her. In Saudi Arabia— and in the Arabian Peninsula, which also persecutes Christians, the church has grown almost not at all over several hundreds of years. To use an example close to China, in the, in the later 1600s, Japan, which is now less than 1% Christian today, had hundreds of thousands of Christians, partly because of the work of the Jesuits from Francis Xavier. Francis Xavier, perhaps one of the coolest missionaries, got to China by hitchhiking with pirates. Okay? Like this guy, this guy was serious, right? The result of his ministry, hundreds of thousands of Japanese people had become Christians. There was a nationalist backlash where all of those people were murdered. And today, hundreds of years later, less than 1% of Japan embraces the gospel. Do not believe that persecution is just good. It's just good. It it, it builds the church. No, it doesn't. 
God in his sovereignty and in his power and in his greatness raises up people of enormous courage who suffer unimaginably so that in some cases where there is persecution, the church rises through their incredible heroism. And that is not something to wave our hands at. It is something to read their biographies to our children before they go to bed at night and to cherish as the great heroes of everything that we believe in. But do not believe that a persecuting ideology or regime in America or in China or in sub-Saharan Africa would in any way be a good thing for the gospel. And also, the gospel grows very well in places where there aren't persecution. The First and Second Great Awakening in America and sub-Saharan Africa, most of the places where the gospel is growing exponentially are not places suffering enormous persecution. Places like Brazil that are now in, in the realm of something like 20% Christian, these places have been evangelized not under the boot of persecution, but only after you embrace the horror of the reality of the injustice of persecution— can you recognize that God is so great a God that he often uses it for amazing things? After you do everything you can to save the lives of the people who are under these things, and when you find yourself powerless to stop it, and when you find them rising above it and doing something heroic, and God using that in his providence for great things, then you can rejoice in the glory of God. And he does use persecution to, to, purify, to purify his church. Listen, I, I know there's just a difference between Madison and where I was in Lynn Haven, Florida. When I was in the South, we had a lot more nominal people at church than here. Because in the South, it was still culturally respectable to be a Christian who really believed in the gospel and really believed in the Bible. And you could go to church and you could rise up and you could, you could become a judge and you could get elected to public office. And Steve Sutherland, who is the Republican of the House of Representatives from that area of, is like an outspoken evangelical Christian, right? You would not get a very high percentage of the vote here if that was a big part of who you were, I imagine. Maybe you would. We'll see. But the, the point is, is that here, you are not—you do not move up socially by being an evangelical in Madison. And that does have an effect on the church. And that's cool. But it's not good— the fact of it isn't good, only the result of it is good. Does that make sense? The great effect of the reality of persecution, looking at the book of Acts, no matter what you've experienced, and looking at the book of Acts and recognizing that persecution, that some will attack, what is that meant to do to us who are not under the knife right now? What, you're like, yeah, but Nick, I mean, I can get a job, fine, I'm doing okay, it's not really that bad. Are you blowing this out of proportion? Here's the, here's the point, and here's why recognizing that and dealing with that is very useful. How did that happen? What, yeah, you, you know what you're doing. Um, and that is this, there's this place in the Gospel of Luke, and I think also in, I think it's in Matthew, where Jesus says, listen, anybody who builds a house has to figure out how much that house is going to cost before they start building it. Because if you start building a house, and you're like, oh, I'm going to build this really big house, and then you don't have the money to finish it, the only thing you really get from that is people making fun of you, right? And there's another—right after that, he says, I mean, think about this, too. Think about a king 
and he knows another king is coming to attack him who's got 20,000 troops, and he's only got 10,000 troops. And the first question he's going to ask before he goes out to war is, can I win? Right? He's not going to go out just to fight. He's going to ask, can I win? And if the answer is no, he's going to go try to cut a deal, right? Because he's thinking about the end cost up front. Now, here's why that helps. Because when you recognize that Jesus says, for example, in Luke 9, 23, he says, if anybody wants to come after me, that person needs to take up their cross daily and follow me. That is, accept execution. You're dead to yourself if you're going to follow me. You're just dead to yourself. And you're going to follow Jesus who, says in 1 Corinthians, is your life, right? And he says right after this, he says, here's why. Because everybody who tries to save their life loses it. Right? The reason why that's important is this, because you're like, Nick, I don't think I'm going to get my head cut off this week. I mean, I just really don't think so. Okay. Okay. But you should be ready to. You should be ready to. And here's why. Because there's no—there are no promises for you in the way of the cross of what you're going to avoid. There's no promises for your life. There's no promises that your children will live. There's no promises you'll get to keep your job. There's no, pro- there's no promises. But here's, here's what the other advantage. If you deal with that all the way to the bottom, if you really take up the cross every day to follow Christ, if you recognize that you're dead to yourself and only alive in him and ready to follow him no matter what people will steal and take from you, that you would only speak faithfully to the very end, here's the thing. That little fight you're having at work isn't going to seem as big. Right? See, because I know some of you are sitting there going like, oh my gosh, can we just get a relevant sermon? I mean, oh, it's just all about oh, persecution and oh, right? I mean, I know some of you are thinking that. It's because you're spiritually mature. It's okay. Um, you, don't, you don't see that the things of God are universally relevant and the things of your own piddly little things are not universally relevant. I, now I understand that. But you see, once you deal with the reality of what Jesus says about your life, you can deal with your cranky spouse, right? Or your kids or your parents. You can deal with being ostracized at school. You can deal with the fact that your professor doesn't really want to talk to you after class because he knows you're one of those people. You can deal with the fact that you may not be in the in crowd at work because of the actions of your integrity and the faithfulness of your speech. And that may mean the other guy gets the promotion ahead of you because he's just in better. It may mean any number of things. And listen, you will be able to deal with all of those if you're, de- if you're dead to yourself in this world. If you deal with the possible end of persecution, the reality of something that you didn't make happen, that you feel like, it's not my fault if I get persecuted, it's Jesus' fault. And it is Jesus' fault. You're absolutely right. And that's part of following him. Taking his name and taking on his reputation. And when people hate his reputation and they take it out on you, you bear it. And here's why. Because you get to bear his reputation eternally. And for the modest majority of that time, it's going to be rejoicing and enjoying that reputation. Modest was a cheeky understatement. If you count the cost, it will help you count the cost for everything else. And it will center and form your Christian character in such a way as that your faith will matter in everything. Every cost will seem like a low cost. Why can't you persevere? It's because you think the price of the suffering is unpayable. 
You don't think you can pay the price. You just don't feel like it's this—you shouldn't have to work this hard. You shouldn't have to give this much. You shouldn't have to deal with this much. And listen, you can think that way if you want. It's really unhelpful. But if you took up your cross every day to follow Jesus, if you bear the martyrdom of his own persecution in your soul, you'll bear everything better. So that brings us to something we'll have to go through rather quickly, which is, so what does it mean then to be right? If that's what it's going to cost to be, tell somebody they're wrong about Jesus, what if the best thing happens and they say, well, what is it to be right about Jesus? And I know that this isn't a cheeky, sexy title, but what, they, what the apostles say is the most important thing to know about Jesus is that he's the Redeemer and he's the King. That's what they say over and over again. In, um, in evangelical language, you may have heard this before, that people will be like, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And you might be like, oh my gosh, isn't that dated language? Well, it's dated language maybe, but it's not a dated concept, right? I mean, what Jesus claims to be in order to be right about Jesus is you have to realize that he is the undisputed right authority of everything. He's king. And secondly, that he is the one who does the saving and redeeming. Those are the two most important things. You cannot understand the true identity of Jesus without those two things. You can get to a good moral teacher somewhere down the line at like 46, but the fundamental center of who he is is king, savior. And therefore, he has to be accepted as what he is, that is, king, savior. That is, savior and lord, right? You see this in a couple of passages, right, in the early Acts, but it's all the way, all the way through Acts, right? Paul's saying, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Christ, Messiah, means anointed one that the whole Old Testament said would come to be the Savior, the King who is Savior, right? Christ means Savior King, essentially. And then in chapter 5, he says, God, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you handed over by— and had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Savior. Do you see the centrality of that title? Prince is height of authority. Savior is what he did, right? The significance of that. So because Jesus is, his death and resurrection has demonstrated that he's the Savior and King. The significance of that is first and foremost the possibility of the salvation from sins. Now that may sound like no duh, but when we try to talk about the gospel holistically, sometimes we take all the implications of the gospel and we lay them out evenly as though they're all equally important. And they're not equally important. There's a fundamental center of what the significance of Jesus being Savior and King means for all of humanity, and that is that it has created the universal possibility that the sins of human beings can be forgiven that the moral and relational rift between God and everything that cre he created through us can be restored by faith, repentance and faith, right? And every time it's repent, he, he gives, he, Jesus says, after I die and rise, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, right? In Acts 2, he says, the, the people say, what should we do? He says, here's what you should do. Repent and be baptized. Baptism signifies taking on Jesus' name. That's, that's, I was wrong. You're right. It's repentance and faith, right? And then Acts 3, he says, repent and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out. That is the, the first and most poignant 
primary purpose is that when you say, I'm wrong, God, you're right, and I trust in you through the Jesus who is Savior and King, the guilt of our sins is wiped out, which restores a relationship with God, which brings the presence of the Holy Spirit and starts to set things right in all places through the forgiveness of sins. So that the significance is this, right? Repentance and faith isn't just demanded, it's actually offered. Think about this. How many of you have somebody in your life that won't talk to you because they feel as though they have been offended? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but you can, right? It's not enough for you, for that person to demand repentance. They have to offer its acceptance. And what God has done is he has demonstrated to humanity in the death and resurrection of Jesus is that he invites our repentance and faith and pre-accepts it. So the person who like will not speak to you because you really did the wrong thing and they don't have to speak to you ever again. The person says, listen, if you apologize, I would accept it. You need to, but I would accept it and our relationship would be restored. God hasn't just rightly demanded our repentance and faith. He's also invited it and told us, th- and told us he would accept it, right? That we could receive through that forgiveness in his name, that through that we could receive the Holy Spirit, that that produces times of refreshing, and ultimately, Paul, um, Peter says, and ultimately he will send the Christ to restore all things. Which means also that if you've repented and haven't been baptized, you should do that, right? After the service, you should go right through those doors to the prayer room and talk with them about being baptized. Because you might be able to be married without having a wedding, but why would you ask your wife to do that? Right? The relationship with Christ that comes through believing and trusting in him, repenting of our sins, is a more profound covenant than even marriage. And the, the biblically given ceremony for that is baptism. This is the last bit, so just hang with me for a couple more minutes. One of the reasons that this is important, and one of the reasons this is especially important in an intergenerational church, is that we have to make sure we know what we're doing. And so we don't get these little silos of people who want to do different things. Um, Three times in the last hundred years, whole generations of Christians have gotten confused about what we're here to do as the family of God in the local church and in the universal church. Um, in the Bible, Jesus gives us, that is the church, a commission. That is, he says, I want you to go do this, okay? Kind of like a commanding officer would say, okay, the general's like, okay, here's the attack, and your unit is going to do this. And if you do this, and all my other troops do what they're meant to do, we're going to get to my ultimate aim, which is vic- victory as I see it. The church— has received the mission of the church through the commission of God. The cheeky Latin for this is the missio ecclesia, the mission of the church. That is distinguished from the missio dei, that is the mission of God, meaning everything God is doing. God is doing all kinds of things everywhere and in all places in accordance with his desires and the ends he wants to bring about. But that does not mean that the church is doing all of those things. Does that make sense? Um, God has told us what he wants us to do while he's doing everything, including helping us, but including doing everything else. The reason why that's important is because 
um, Christians, and this is, this is rampant in evangelicalism right now, especially among the younger generations, because they've been taught by the older generations this. That everything you see in the character of God is part of what he wants to do in creation in terms of redemption. And so God is loving and he's redemptive and he provides and he does, the, he wants to bring justice. And therefore, because God is a provider, he doesn't want anybody to be hungry. And because God is a God of justice, he doesn't want there to be injustice anywhere in the world. And because God is a redeemer of slaves, he wants to free all slaves. And because he is a, he is a respecter of women, he wants there to be no sex trafficking. And because he's a, and because he's a, and because he's a, right? And in, in one of those things is he wants people to hear the message of the gospel and of redemption. And what happens then is there is a bringing together of what we're supposed to do and what we see in the character of God generally. And that is a theological mistake. It's a theological mistake. We are not called as the church to do everything and anything we believe God would morally approve of and desire to be the case. It is our job fundamentally and primarily to do the thing Jesus told us to do, which is to be his witnesses among all people in all ages and in all times, and to lead them to the gospel. Now, when we do that, and people become disciples of Jesus, and in in the words of the Great Commission, learn to obey everything that he commanded us, Christians will begin to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. And when Christians love their neighbors as themselves and recognize that they live in a city of people that they need to love and care about, they will do all kinds of things beneficially in all kinds of places. And they will run for public office and they will start nonprofits and they will feed the hungry and they'll do all kinds of things like that. And listen, I intentionally am saying this to you on a week where we talked about our developmental charitable partnership that is holistic in the Dominican Republic. And I will just tell you over the last two weeks, I have spent piles of hours and I have had one of our pastoral interns do almost nothing but work on a early childhood developmental project in in conjunction with the African American Council of Churches to affect moms in those churches in the developmental early years and to affect all the daycares in Madison so that they can focus on early child. Like, that is not this. And I've spent a lot of time because I care about that. And I want to do something about it. And we can. But I do not mistake that for the mission of the church. We will do lots of things together. We will do lots of things together. And sometimes we will do things socially and holistically and charitably that will be examples to the world. We invented hospitals, for example. Kind of a good idea, right? But we, as the church, have to remember that our main job is the job we don't want. Our main job is the job to tell people that they're wrong about Jesus and to invite them to the real one. And if you ask yourself why we don't want to do that, I would refer you back really to point one. Because the reason why we like some things is because they're so clearly right and we won't get persecuted for them. Nobody is going to call you a bigot when you serve as a soup kitchen, you work for the benefit of people who are being sex trafficked, and so on. And those things are good, and if they're your thing, you should do them. And I'm behind you, and you let me know how I can help, because those are great and important things. But one of the reasons why we don't fully embrace who we're meant to be as the group of people on the earth who are bringing the message is because we know darn well 
that the majority of people are going to reject us and a certain subset of that people are going to attack us. And we are made cowards by that because we don't deal with whether or not we are going to take up our cross daily and follow him. Whether we have lost our lives in this earth in order to gain them. Whether for the sake of the gospel we will face any persecution because the name of Jesus, because King Jesus is that great. And when we become a church that is like that, we will be of maximal social good in our city because the person who's willing to face any level of persecution to be faithful to who Jesus made us is the same person who will give up other things for the good of people that they care about. I'm going to be really frank with you for just a second, and I'll try to be not too offensive. I was at um, a meeting where people were talking about kids being left behind recently, right? Just kids just being left behind. They don't make it in school, and it creates this underclass and all this kind of thing. And people were, were speaking very passionately, some yelling that, you know, Madison, we've had enough of the words, and we've had enough of promises, and we've had enough of the talking, and we're a community that talks, and all this kind of thing. And back and forth it went, and I sat there, and I said, and I'm, I'm thinking, I did not say this because I don't know what would have happened to me. The reason it doesn't go forward is because there's no cavalry. There's no cavalry. There's no horses. What it takes for 2,000 little kids who are going to fall behind by the time they go to first you know, kindergarten, they're going to assume that they're stupid, and then by the time they're 12, they're going to start acting out, is that we're going to have to have thousands of people care about them every day. And there's no cavalry for that. There's no horses. Nobody wants to do it. That's why we talk and talk for generations. But the people who are dead in Jesus— who have looked down the ugly snout of persecution and said, do your worst. I belong to the Savior King. I have no life for myself on this earth, and I will belong to you forever, come what may, so that somehow in his death I will attain the resurrection of the dead. Those people will give up their privacy to invite in a family. Those people will sacrifice some of their leisure and hobby time to spend time mentoring. Those people will give money they would spend on a slightly better um, vacation to do something good. Those people will be a cavalry. Those people can accomplish anything. And so I do not say this like, oh, we don't care about the city. Let's just tell everybody about Jesus. No, we care about the city. And if we care about the city, we will tell them about Jesus. And some of them will accept it. Some of them won't. And some of them will attack us. And in doing that, we will become the kind of people who will do anything else. That's all. Let's pray. Father, um, would you please help us to— to deal with and look at and think about and count, just count the cost. I mean, we, we just, to think about what you said, that to see persecution for what it is, to see that it's normal, that is, it's going to happen, to see it for as horrible as it is, and to know what our attitude and action against it should be, 
to recognize its, its usefulness and, and the effect it should have on us. And we pray that you would help us to deal with the reality of mentally each day saying that we are ready to take up our cross and follow you, and that if we try to save our life in this world, we'll lose it. But if we lose it, we'll save it, and that we have— and bring us to a place of freedom in that, and courage and boldness that is not out of insecurity or fear or pride, but it is full of a powerful joy and thankfulness and love towards others, and make us capable of the thing that is not normal— which is that we would be able to love our enemies. And we pray that through that, you would be glorified. People would know you, and we would become the kinds of disciples we were meant to be. And we pray that out of that, you would produce joy in us. Whether it's joy in seeing people come to you, or whether it is joy in rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer for the name. We pray in the Savior King's Jesus' name. Amen.